Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to another episode of The Fort. Uh, I'm excited to have a good friend of mine, Colin Adderhold, with me today. Colin and I have been fortunate enough to do business over the last couple of years. Um, Colin is with JLL and is a senior director in their capital markets group, was previously with HFF before they got purchased. And Colin is an expert on the capital markets and what is going on. So I thought we would have an interesting conversation today about what you're seeing through your lens. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. If you had to describe your job and, and what all you do and kind of how you got into this. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess I would tell my kids that I, I raise money for real estate. And I'm assuming the the audience of this podcast is not five-year-old children. Um, so I'll give you the, the more detailed uh, answer. But um, yeah, I, I do. I raise capital for uh, commercial real estate transactions. And that can be for acquisition, that can be refinance, it can be development of new projects or recapitalization of existing partnerships. Uh, so we raise capital from all sources, work with uh, banks, life insurance companies, debt funds and mortgage REITs, even structured lenders uh, like MES lenders and preferred equity all the way up into the equity stack. So uh, raising common joint venture equity and um, sometimes GP equity. So we do really any touch any kind of capital for real estate deals and um, all sorts of real estate. As you just said, I've been with HFF for 12 years prior to this last year with JLL. And um, you know, through that have have touched a lot of really cool projects and made a lot of really good friends in the business like yourself. Do you spoke what asset classes and then do you go nationwide? I do um, really touch all asset classes. We're kind of generalist by design on the debt side of our shop. The investment sales side of our shop tends to specialize in a, a certain asset class, but you know, a lot of the banks that we work with or life companies, lenders that we work with are generalists. And, and so kind of by design, so are we. You know, I've touched really all asset classes, the major food groups, multifamily, industrial, office, and retail. Um, and then some of the niche product types as well, student housing, senior housing, data center, self-storage, uh, things of that nature. And yeah, we're nationwide. We're really not kind of bound by any geographic limitations. I've got clients that, that span coast to coast and capital that's uh, everywhere from New York to LA to even Canada and overseas. And the real estate can be anywhere. So, you know, I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I worked on a project last year for a client out of New York, a property in Miami, and the lender was in Canada. Wow. So, um, yeah, it keeps it fun. Did you uh, know you were going to get into this line of work 12 years ago, or how did you uh, stumble into it? Um, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to get into real estate. My, my dad's a real estate attorney, and so kind of, you know, dinner table talk was was often you know real estate um and i kind of developed an understanding and appreciation for the business early on but kind of went into college thinking you know that was the plan and uh always kind of been a numbers guy in the finance world really interested me 
in during college, kind of got enamored with the Wall Street investment banking path, and uh, you know thought that might be a fun way to get started in finance. Uh, but graduated college in 2002, so interviews in the fall semester uh, senior year were right after 9/11 and the dot-com bust. And suffice it to say, there weren't uh, many analyst jobs and not many interviews for Wall Street. But it was fine. I ended up working for a bank that I had interned for here in Dallas. And um, that internship was primarily a a real estate internship and, um, you know, got to the bank right when the bank was trying to slow down real estate and do more corporate lending. So I got exposure to both sides of the bank, which was great experience and just stumbled into um, an opportunity. One of the lenders that I worked for on the corporate banking side started his own company and asked me to come be his analyst with a few guys. They were um, starting a little boutique investment banking shop. So I kind of took that opportunity. It wasn't you know, something that I sought out necessarily, but it was a great experience. And I kind of fell in love with that investment banking advisory process and that role in the transaction being able to help people, you know, with raise capital to, to, to grow their business or buy out a partner and, and own it themselves or kind of help people achieve, you know, their capital goals. So um, did that for about three years and, you know, really had the itch to get back into real estate. Um, but I liked what I was doing and through conversations with some mentors trying to figure out how to marry the two, kind of that investment banking role in the real estate business I got introduced to um, to HFF, and um, you know that was 2006, 2007. So they were hiring; they were the machine was cranking full speed, and I was lucky enough to uh, to get hired really at the peak and get a taste of of the <laughs> the pace pace of the of the peak market. And um, you know, I've been at HFF or JLL ever since. I love it. Um, some of our most fun conversations that we've had, uh, at least for me, um, your understanding of finance and, you know, how deals get done and how they get structured and, you know, just things that you've seen some of your best clients do. It's just always been really fun. And so, you know, are there certain things that great real estate investors do that you've witnessed over a period of time that kind of show that they're really good because they understand finance and they understand how to structure deals and, um, kind of how to use the tools that are available to them to their advantage. Is there anything that kind of stands out to you there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess a number of different answers come to mind. But I think even going back to my days at the bank, you know, it gave me visibility into multiple different clients and how they operate. And on one end of the spectrum, you'd have, you know, two guys or, or a private investor that was you know, he'd call up and say, "Hey, I, I want to build this building for ten million and sell it for fifteen. Go, for, you know, give me the money to go build it." And you're like, "Wow, that's your that's your pro forma." Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you had people that had just you know, data after data, and and had looked at it every which way and modeled the daylights out of it, and were super sophisticated about it. And you know, I always thought that you know, as long as there are people who are less efficient, there's an opportunity to be an advisor and help them be more efficient with their capital. If someone can make a 15% return on a deal or a 20% return on a deal 
and on back of the napkin numbers, if they got really good and really efficient with their capital, that they could, you know, there was always the ability to help them get to 22 or, you know, get a slightly better return. And that's really the foundation of the kind of how we view our business is, is helping people be the most efficient with their capital, but also aligning them with, with partners and their capital partners that really means as much as, as, you know, the dollars and cents. Um, but I think there's a lot of people out there that, that I think do this business very well. We get to work with a lot of great professionals in our, you know, daily, you know, workday. Yep. Um, but, you know, I think people that hire good advisors and hire good people and let their people do their job and listen to their employees and listen to their advisors, you know, we're in this business every day. We see a lot of things that, you know, just we kind of try and boil that down into advice for other people. But, you know, using your advisors and, and hiring professionals to kind of help with specific tasks like the capital uh, structure is, I think, an important thing to do. But, you know, I also thought back about early in my career, some of my mentors that I looked to in development when I was coming out of college, I thought, you know, I didn't really understand all the different colors of the rainbow in the real estate business, right? It was pretty simple. There were the people that built the building and, you know, maybe the people that financed it and the, the leasing brokers that filled the building. And one of my mentors was a developer. And I asked him, how do you get into, you know, what's, what's the path? How do you get into development? And, um, you know, you ask a guy who came from the leasing side and he would tell you, well, you can't build a building if you don't know what you're supposed to build. Like you need to be, come from the leasing side so you know what the tenants want and then go build that. And then you talk to one guy who comes from the finance side and say, well, that's great. But if, you know, if it's not economical, if it doesn't make money, why would you ever build it? You need to understand the finance side. I think they're all important, but uh, you know, I kind of always, you know, have been numbers oriented, and and finance was kind of natural for me, or you know, math anyway. So that was the path that was most natural for me, and uh, got introduced to um, you know the banking side of the business, the finance side of the business as a plan to get into development. But I really fell in love with it, and you know, found our, our niche, if you will, and, um, you know, kind of took it from there. Yeah. No, I love it. So the, we've been obviously in a, a good run for the last 10 years. I know you've gotten to work on some really cool, uh, projects, um, kind of s- focusing a little more on what we're, we're seeing now. What's been like the, pr- we had lunch, I think March 1st, or I was looking at my calendar of this, of this past month, a little over 30 days ago. And, it was the day that I think uh, rates dropped to half a percent. The Fed rate dropped to half a percent. Um, you said it was the busiest day you've you'd had in a long time. Uh, rates were low. This is kind of ten days before the coronavirus uh, started kind of taking its hold on America. What's the last month been like? You know, as an owner, I just keep hearing like the capital markets are on freeze or on pause, but. Just a little uh, of your kind of reflection on the last month and uh, how you went from having your busiest day, uh, not saying you haven't had busy days since, but probably under a different type of work. Uh, what's the last month look like for you? Yeah, it's a different kind of busy for sure. Yeah, it's been a wild, wild month, quite a roller coaster. And yeah, since that time, God, it seems like a year ago, uh, since that time, a lot of things have happened. You've had you know, a lot of projects had uh, kind of fell apart. I think you know development is on hold. A lot of projects that we've been working on for for months 
you know, got put on hold either temporarily or, or indefinitely. You had, uh, you know, I think a lot of investors have pulled back and started to question, you know, really what, what does this mean for the long-term perspective and, and how do I even underwrite rents or occupancy or absorption or value? So, um, you know, there's different stages of the acquisition process or different stages of a refinance um, where, you know, depending on how far along investors were, uh, you know, they may have proceeded to go ahead and close that transaction or pull out and potentially walk on deposits and, and sunk costs. So we've seen all of the above. And it's been really fascinating to see how different people react and respond and, and, and treat the situation. But um, we've been very busy. I think my, my partners, my firm, you know, one of our strengths is our ability to, to communicate and help each other. Um, both locally within our Dallas office here and nationally and even internationally. So, you know, we're communicating. I, I can't tell you how many internal calls. I literally have at least nine or 10 calls a week um, starting at 8 a.m. Monday morning going you know, through. I've got one tonight talking about what we're seeing. And on the investment sales side of the business, our transactions closing, who's Who's closing? Who's pulling out? You know, how are people treating price adjustments? What's the order of magnitude uh, and lender behavior? How are people handling it? And then we're also having conversations with the the lending community to help recapitalize them. Um, there's several lenders who we can kind of talk about in more detail if you want, but mm-hmm. certain lenders who are distressed. And you know, in addition to the the landlords being distressed, there's a lot of lenders out there that are uh, having to figure out their capital structures. So. We're doing some advisory with those groups and, um, you know, it's early. It's only week three or four of, of this whole process, but it's a new world. That's for sure. Yep. And if you had a, a loan, let's say uh, you locked a rate and it was committed, call it like March 1st through the 7th, and it was something signed, does that continue to move forward or does the lender have an opportunity to kind of rescind that? Everything I heard Everything I've heard is that anything that was kind of locked in and ready to go still went through. But I guess my question's more from a lender perspective, do they have to make good on their commitment? Is it a reputational thing? Is it a legal thing? Is it all of the above? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, it kind of is all of the above. It certainly is reputation. And, um, you know, I've only been in this business for a few cycles, but, you know, I think going back to 2008, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of people who who built reputations that, in that environment, and uh, we still remember. And you know, I think a lot of the individual people who are originators for these different uh, lending institutions are, you know, extremely focused on that. They know at a personal level what that means for their relationships with their their borrowers, and you know, that doesn't always mean that the institution is going to let them uh, do things you know, their way. And so it it it's it's something that we watch. I think is it a a legal you know commitment or just kind of a reputational commitment? Um, certainly reputational. And in some cases, you can make an argument that it is a legal issue if if lenders don't perform. But you know, there's a lot of clauses in in those loan documents that you know, especially coming out of the last uh, cycle, that give lenders some flexibility for a macro event like this, material adverse you know change. Um, but I think it also depends on the type of lender you're talking about. So, you know, life companies are kind of the steady eddy of the real estate business. And 
you know, I'm, I rate locked a deal, um, on the front end of this and we're in closing, we're supposed to close tomorrow and they have held their rates. They have performed and, um, you know, done very well. And I think that's pretty consistent for most, most life insurance companies, but a lot of the bridge lenders, the debt funds, the mortgage REITs that are kind of the non-bank lenders, some of those groups, um, have had to, you know, pull out of transactions and, it, you know, if it were up to them, if it was just about that transaction in a vacuum, then they would, you know, perform as, as according to the term sheet or the loan docs. But, you know, a lot of those groups are having margin calls on their warehouse lines and, and, you know, they've got issues elsewhere in the shop that is forcing them to just not take on any new obligations. And we are seeing some deals fall apart because of it. Is there anybody out there that is, you know, trying to acquire something that's asking for, for debt right now and any kind of picture you can paint on if it's just every lender saying no wait or is there any kind of processes still moving forward where lenders are trying to make a loan right now and is it borrower dependent is it asset type dependent or is it just on shutdown right now yeah i think um there are parts of the lending market that are that are you know on pause uh, or shut down, but we, you know, I think if you were to ask someone in New York, they'd tell you the sky is falling and there's there is no debt available for commercial real estate. And frankly, that's just not true. I mean, we are. Um, I'm in the market with a handful of projects where our office is actively financing deals. Um, you know, the agencies are still open for business. Life companies are still open for business. Banks are still lending. You know, there's even a few debt funds trying to figure out how to how to be active. Um, they've got you know dry powder, they just can't leverage their position as, as efficiently uh, as they used to be. So pricing has gone up across the board. You know, leverage, I think, is is coming in a little bit as people are just cautious. You know, they're not quite sure how to underwrite value right now. So what used to be 65% leverage might be 60 today. Um, what used to be three to three and a half percent interest rate might be four to four and a half or at least high threes today. So, you know, people are being a little more conservative. You know, there's higher perceived risk, uh, so pricing's gone up a little bit. And you know, we can get into detail about how different people uh, define their pricing. You know, I think it's something that will settle down a little bit, but it'll be wider than it was. But it's still, you think back about historic interest rates, and you know, we're talking about rates in the high threes to low fours as if that's a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cheap money, right? Yep. In the grand scheme of things, so. Yeah, it's it's interesting times. It's been, you know, it was very volatile the last two or three weeks, but I think it's going to kind of calm down. You know, it may it's going to find a footing, and and lenders are going to figure out how to get on offense again. And you know, the one good thing I think that's that's good for our whole business is that our whole industry is that we went into this crisis with you know record levels of 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 capital, just dry powder. So. You know, that should point to a quick recovery and a kind of a, a floor on how bad this can get, but it's early and, and we'll see how people choose to use that dry powder. Yep. Uh, you said uh, sh- sharing a little detail as to how they price things. Yeah, I would love to hear kind of how these lenders are going about pricing stuff right now and uh, like what has occurred in the last week that would even make that kind of come back. Sure. Um well, again, I guess that's a different discussion for each category of of capital, you know, banks, life companies, you know, CMBS or or debt funds. But you know, life companies are probably the easiest to peg right now. You know, those guys uh, typically will 
benchmark their their commercial real estate lending, you know, interest rates against corporate bonds. So, you know, what we saw, um, you know, if you're a portfolio manager for a life insurance company and you've got to allocate, you know, a certain amount of your investment book to public equities or fixed income or commercial real estate, you know, and that can be equity or debt in the commercial real estate space, you've got to decide how to allocate that money. And you're looking at relative value and relative pricing. So, you know, when when corporate bonds, you know, widen out and and you know, triple A's go widen out by 50 basis points, well, that's suddenly more attractive, you know, than than commercial real estate loans, unless commercial real estate loans earn you 50 basis points more as well. Right. So what we saw, you know, kind of early March was, you know, the corporate bond market just completely blew out. You know, the the stock market went down. And you know, debt to equity balances looked awful, and you know, no one wanted to be in corporate bonds, so they sold them, and the yields went up. So when that happened, the the pricing for life insurance money on real estate loans went up as well. And um, you know, the, there was kind of a knee jerk reaction in the market, and it took commercial real estate loans from kind of the low threes, or sometimes we were locking some interest rates for ten year loans in the high twos. And overnight, within a week, it was, you know, all of a sudden, uh, life companies were pricing loans into the low to mid 4% range. It's a pretty big jump, right? But corporate bond market has settled down and it's come in some days, 20, 25 bips a day. And, you know, I think you're seeing some life insurance companies quote deals in the high threes, 375 range, even, you know, kind of closer to 350. And, but it's scattered. I think it, we're still in a price discovery period and, some life insurance companies really like that 4% you know, level and are trying to hang on to it. But I think they know the market's coming in a little bit. So that's kind of what's happening in the life company world right now. Debt funds are a pretty fascinating space right now. Um, you know, That's a levered vehicle. So um, someone goes out and raises a $500 million debt fund. That's $500 million of equity that they go lever from a bank line, a warehouse line, a repo line, um, maybe two to one, three to one, even four to one. So they might raise $500 million and turn around with leverage. They might put out $2 billion worth of loans to lenders in you know commercial real estate space, uh, to borrowers, I mean. And so what they're doing is they're trying to return a, call it an 8 to a 10% uh, return to their equity. And, and they're borrowing money in a, in a you know senior tranche and creating kind of a synthetic mez that, that returns 8%. That warehouse line might be LIBOR 175. Um, they might lend you money at LIBOR 350, and um, you know they're returning something in the, to the tune of eight to nine percent to their investors. That whole business model is, you know, dependent on the bank warehouse lines or repo lines or a note financing on individual deals. So the bank market is really fueling the non-bank lending market, and what we've seen happen is that. With the, you know, the shutdown from the coronavirus and hotels being at zero or you know closing their doors temporarily, you've seen a lot of those warehouse lines have margin call requirements. So they have to mark to market, and um, you know they they require those those debt funds to put up additional capital to on you know in kind of a margin call format, and that has really crippled the debt fund business, and and the warehouse lenders have frozen new issuance and. You know the debt funds aren't able to leverage their positions, and so they aren't able to leverage, uh, you know, and, and offer 350 loans anymore. 
you know, if you talk to any of those guys, they say, look, I've got equity. I'll lend you money at LIBOR plus 700 and, you know, on an unlevered basis, but no one's going to borrow that money unless they really have to. There's a few lenders out there today that are still trying to figure out how to get deals done. And some people are continuing to take risks. And they're saying, look, I, I can't lever my position today. L300 is you know, not an option, but I'm going to assume that sometime in the next six to nine months, I'm going to be able, you know, the debt markets will loosen up and I'll be able to leverage my position. So I'll lend you money at say L400, L450. And that's basically a combination of, of six to nine months of an unlevered position followed by 12 to 18 months of, you know, a levered position. And, and they're able to kind of put out some money today at L400, L450 and still try and get a few deals done and, and pick off deals they want to do. Yep. Would you, uh, is, is, is a private fund structure the same as kind of the mortgage REIT structure? They're similar. You know, I think the mortgage REITs are more public vehicles or some of them non-traded, but... Um, but the same thing with mark to market and they're borrowing money to, you know, give themselves uh, more ability to lend more. That's right. It's yeah. a levered vehicle, right? And uh, and there's a great article that that Tom Barrick from from Colony wrote. It's on Medium.com that really goes into detail. He kind of proposes a few things to for for the government or regulators to to really understand about you know the the multiple levels behind a lot of these non bank lenders and things like um, you know the repo market and how critical that is to the real estate business. So I suggest you know anyone listening to go look that up. I think it 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 goes into great detail and does a great job of kind of highlighting some of the underlying inherent risks in the business. For sure, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, you know hotels and retail have been kind of at the front of what's going on in in real estate. They're getting hit the hardest. How do how does that? I guess is are those the last loans that end up coming back to where you can borrow to buy that stuff or refinance it or how does something that like that work when those asset classes have been identified as the most risky um you know is there is there is there a lag like will industrial and multifamily start getting financing before those will do lenders look at it as this is a moment in time and this isn't normal um if you own retail or a hotel right now do you have a harder chance of getting a good bank note a year from now when things have settled or does it go back to normal? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you know, I guess it requires a lot of speculation, but I think people are going to look at, at real estate differently. I think, you know, that this was for, for every asset class to be affected and frankly, every individual in, in, you know, commerce to be affected. It's a pretty black swan event, but yeah, no, I think hotels, I think people will, are going to have to assign a higher risk rating to to hotels as they were already considered kind of a vulnerable asset class to a downturn and you know even more so now so you know pricing will adjust and it's going to adjust to a level that's going to attract capital and and you know the free markets will decide what that is um but in the lending community yeah i mean our conversations today you know in the last several weeks with you know whether it's live companies or or banks or even um you know, the debt fund community, uh, you know, I think of the four main food groups, industrial is kind of the, um, you know, industrial and multifamily are the two that people are, are actively lending on, or, you know, I think is kind of a universal, um, you know, interest right now. Um, you know, selective, you know, trophy office or core office. I think people are going to, 
Um, there's a lot of crazy ideas floating around about how people are going to adjust to work from home. You know, is that going to be a, a, a common theme going forward? And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty ready to be back in the office. I think there's a, a social aspect to coming to work and, and um, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, I don't think it's going to materially change things in the, in the office world, but you know, I think there's some economic fallout people have to underwrite and, you know, retail as well. I think, you know, poor retail, it's, it's had so many issues. And I think there's been a lot of operators that have started to figure things out and, you know, adapt to the new retail environment and, and, you know, omni-channel retail. This was just another kick in the gut for an already kind of tough business. Uh, so it's going to, it's going to wash out a lot of malls. It's going to wash out a lot of, of, you know, retail that, that, Frankly, we were, if we were over retailed, um, you know, this is going to be a big cleansing for that business, and it will be hard for people to to get financing in retail and hotel for a while. I think lenders will be skeptical. Leverage is going to come down, and pricing is going to go up. And but I think there's going to be liquidity for it at some level. And um, you know, you got to think. I mean, hotels are going to come back, right? It's 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 a temporary shutdown, and who knows when, but. We're already starting to look to the Asian markets that have recovered in China, and Korea, and Singapore, and uh, you know they're starting to open hotels back up. Occupancy. I just read a report today from our uh, JLL offices over there that are tracking it pretty closely, and you know hotel occupancy is up to kind of twenty to thirty percent, and you know right off the bat, and um, it'll take a while for conferences to get scheduled again, and you know weddings to get booked, and you know big events like that, but. Um, It'll pick up. Yep. It, it's uh, it's just going to take some time. Like if you kind of assume that we're kind of the end of a cycle, we're starting a new cycle. Um, are there typical things that no matter what the asset class is, uh, if you're borrowing, um, you know, just typical things you see early cycle loans having more covenants, less leverage, you know, more questions being asked. Are there things that maybe a listener that might be uh, expecting to get a loan here in the next year, things they might see that they probably weren't seeing for the past couple of years? I guess, you know, it's <laughs> starting a new cycle is going to be great for one reason. Um, people are going to stop asking what inning we're in. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> we're in the first inning and it feels so good. Yep. Um, but no, how things are going to change coming out of this, I'm not sure. I will tell you that, you know, um, every time there's a, 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 a a cycle or a, um, you know, a, a, a downturn, loan documents get longer, right? Lenders learn lessons and lawyers put in more protections to protect for certain specific things that they went through. Um, and that trickles through to covenants to, um, you know, the structural components of a loan. And um, yeah, I think some people are going to, are going to probably put in language relative to macro events that maybe weren't in those loan documents before. We're seeing things tighten up a little bit. I think leverage is coming down. I think debt yield requirements are going up. But yeah, that's a that's a market dynamic that that could widen out as as soon as people gain confidence again. So that doesn't bother me as much. Do you have a bunch of pin up demand right now for I know I would be one of those people, but like refinancing as soon as things kind of open back up and some sense of normalcy? Are are you are you expecting a rush of folks, you know, assuming that the, the market's there for it, uh, the first wave of business is going to be a lot of refinancing? Yeah, um, I'm not sure what, you know, whether, I, th- I think there's going to be a lot of acquisition and disposition, right? I think for properties that are struggling and 
and um, you know people that have um, issues to solve and need liquidity, they're gonna they're gonna sell assets to harvest liquidity where they can and use that liquidity to go solve other problems. So this will be good for to to kind of you know jolt the market and um, you know spur some transaction volume. Um, refinance is um, you know to the extent someone's got a vacancy to fill, they might need a bridge loan to go capitalize the uh, the backfilling of vacancy. You know, so I could see a lot of that, you know, refinancing activity, uh, you know, peaking. But, um, you know, interest rates are still low. I think we've got, you know, what is this, 2020. So, you know, you think about 10-year loans that were done in 2010. I think we're going to see a growth over the next few years of 10-year loan maturities that led us out of the last recession. And, um, you know, it'll take a couple of years for that to really build up. But we've had so so much of our business has been bridge financing over the last several years. And those are typically short-term loans with, you know, three to four year maturities. And um, yeah, I think a lot of those are are going to be either coming to market to sell or um, be refinancing for, you know, another hold period. That actually brings up a good question. If you have a loan right now that was uh, maybe, you know, you were expecting to refinance it or sell it, you're in a bridge note situation or any note for that matter. And that expiration date is coming due, you know, maybe in over the next three months where the markets are, you know, pretty closed. What happens in a situation like that? Do most lenders kind of give you a little extra extension? Obviously this is a different situation than ones in the past, but what happens if you have a note due in the next few months? Are you either kind of taking it in the shorts and your new loan is even, you know, higher than the one that you had or are lenders usually kind of, you know, willing to give an extension in, in an environment like this? Yeah, I think for the most part, um, lenders are asking themselves that question right now. How are they going to treat all these issues? And um, I don't think there's a uniform answer that's been that you could point to. Um I think it's lender by lender, and they're they're trying to decide. I think as a as an industry, how are we going to all collectively respond to this? You know, if we all collectively try to serve our own best interests, and it's it's somewhat of a run on the bank um, in in terms of collecting maturities, um, they're going to crush. They're going to shoot themselves in the foot as an industry. So, to the extent they have the ability, meaning like a bridge lender, you know, it's typically a three year primary term with two year two one year extensions. I think the banks are going to try to extend. Um, the balance sheet lenders have the ability to do that more so than, say, you know, CMBS. Um, you know, but I think that even the servicers are talking, um, you know, daily about how to modify loans that are requesting some some kind of relief. Um, they're talking about can we, you know, work with our borrowers to do some kind of extension. You know, what do the loan documents allow us to do, and then. Outside of the four corners of the document, what do we think we we should be doing? So we'll see. I mean, again, it's early, and a lot of lenders are still trying to make those tough decisions. But I think the government kind of came out. The first step was to tell the banks, guys, be the solution, don't be the problem. We're not going to classify your loan if you modify the loan to help your borrowers do what you need to do to solve problems and work with your borrowers. And you know that was very very helpful, um, but you've still seen, you know, different banks handle that different ways and, and different ways, and um, it's it's kind of playing out real time right now. So yep. we'll see. Do do you or JLL uh, deal with? 
kind of distressed debt situations. Um, so if somebody's looking to to buy distressed debt, is that something that, that y'all work on or does that happen directly with the servicers or you know what happens to any distressed debt that starts coming to market? And do you play a role in any of that? Uh, we as a firm do. Um, in fact, I had a call this morning with a guy in our Dallas office who handles our you know loan sales. Um, so our loan sales group is uh, kind of a, a specialist in dealing with uh, performing loans, non-performing loans, uh, even selling REO assets for lenders. Uh, so for you know the last eight years or so, they've been you know kind of busy. But when when things like like this happen, they are they are super super busy. But yeah, so do I play a role in that? You know, I've got a lot of clients who have called and said, "Hey, if there's distressed paper out there, I'd like to buy it." You know, put me in front of your your deal flow, and um, and then to the extent someone is buying a loan, there's a market for you know l- leveraging that purchase. So debt on debt is uh, or note financing. Um, you know, we do some of that as a part of our business. It's not a huge part of our business, but it is something that we work on. Yep. Do you remember the moment when you knew that this coronavirus was kind of real? Um, I did a podcast yesterday uh, where I just talked about I was one of the the naysayers, uh, even as early as March 9th, not not really thinking uh, before I left for spring break, it was a big deal. And within three days, I'd been turned upside down. Do you remember kind of the moment that you were like, oh, shit, this is this is real? You know, um, what's really funny is, is I guess there were two points. One, the week of February 21st to the 27th um, is when the, the volatility index spiked. I think it doubled that week. And we, uh, I was in San Diego for the, the JLL National Production Conference for the entire capital markets group across the country. So we had, you know, I think about 700 producers nationwide, including partners from London and a couple other offices, all in San Diego for three days of company meetings. And, you know, everybody's in these meetings were we're basically fined if we look at our phones. Meanwhile, you know, treasuries are dropping through the floor and there's starting to be some real concern about this issue. So relevant to our active deal pipeline, I mean, I was trying to lock an interest rate with a lender and treasuries were dropping through the floors. Um, you know, it was, we were watching our phones by the minute, you know, watching treasury drop. So that was kind of a first indicator that something's going on. Like, you know, the world cares about this, you know, the finance market cares about this and people are concerned. So you saw a flight to quality that was, you know, I think foreign capital was rushing into the U S it was rushing in kind of a flight to quality buying, you know, treasuries. And so that was, you know, certainly memorable, um, just being being out there in the middle of a lot of chatter with my partners about what's going on. So the second was you kind of mentioned spring break. You know, we had plans to go to Rosemary Beach, Florida, with another family and rented a house, and we were planning on flying and and uh, you know, kind of that first or second week of March. And here we were, two or three days before we were supposed to leave. And I'm talking to my my buddy about should we even be going? Is this smart? You know, I don't think anybody really quantified this issue yet. So we decided at least let's still go because if we quarantine, we'll start, we were starting here quarantine. We'll just quarantine together at the beach. That'll be better. Like we've got small kids. We're going to drive ourselves crazy at home. Um, so we drove instead of, of flying and, um, you know, ended up going. And, and it was really interesting 
so that was a, that was kind of the moment. Um, but my friend that that the family that we went with, my friend is a private wealth manager, and uh, you know, so we had a lot of of interesting conversation about you know panic and fear and human psychology and what he was seeing in the markets and what I was hearing in the markets. So that was a really interesting time to be kind of quarantined with someone else in that business and kind of comparing notes on on the whole deal. So. Yeah, I think you look back on this, you know, the the coronavirus, and and this is probably going to be one of those things where you think, you know, where were you when? Or um, it wasn't an an, uh, an instant like nine eleven, but you know, I think you can still point to. Uh, it's a great question because I think you can still point to the point when you each of us individually kind of realized this is a bigger deal than uh, than I thought it was. Yep, mine. I was sitting with my wife uh, watching. Uh, TV and they made the announcement that the NBA was shutting down for the year, uh, and in that like moment, I got goosebumps. I looked at my wife and I just like everything I had been kind of trash talking about it not being a real thing. I looked at her and I said, "I completely changed my mind. This is going to be one of the biggest things we will ever deal with." Um, and from that moment forward, it's just been a steady progression. I'll never forget it. Pretty wild times. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for uh, for your time and insight today. I always love uh, chatting and learning from you. It's certainly going to be interesting rest of the year, um, and I'm glad to be able to, to ping you uh, once a week. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Okay, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.